following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. In this church history sermon series, we take a look at people and events that still speak to our time and place. For more information, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's page number 956 if you're using one of the Bibles there the seat in front of you. It's not often that a uh, pastor begins his sermon by chiding his congregation for being too nice, but I'm going to do it today. I don't know if anyone else noticed what happened at the very beginning of the service, but if you did, you may, like me, have chuckled at the moment that it occurred. Here was Jordan up here getting ready to start. He's got his microphone in his hand. He's like, everybody, welcome. So glad to have you. And nobody listens to him. Everybody's like, da 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 so he speaks up. Welcome to Cornerstones. Glad to have you. And what did you do? You talked louder. <laughs> he was interrupting your conversation. It's a bad day. It's a bad day. 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to read verses 19 to 23. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, um, please speak to us today through your word and your spirit. Take it and apply it to our hearts. Convict us. Change us. Make us like Christ. Make us faithful ministers who are living in a foreign land. Help us to remember both today and every day that this world we see around us is not our home. It's like, it's like we're drowning in this world. And, and we just we need you, Father, to help lift our eyes out of the water so we can look up and look around and see what true reality is, what What world awaits us? What home awaits us? What country is really our true country? And I pray then that we would live in light of that, that we would live as foreigners, as sojourners, as missionaries, that we would live as people who recognize that whatever happens to us here is not, it's not ultimate. It's not, it's not the end. And so use us It's in your sovereign plan that you choose to do so. We ask that you do it to use us as travelers walking through this life to take others with us, to share Christ with them in the gospel so that one day many will stand around your throne. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the modern buzzwords that I feel like I hear uh, quite often nowadays, and there are many of them, believe me, is the word cross-cultural. Whenever it's used, it's used to refer to a moment when two cultures 
come into contact in some way, shape, or form. And whenever that happens, inevitably, just because of the nature of how cultures are, funny stuff tends to happen. Not necessarily purposely, but just because cultures are different, and so some stuff just occurs. I'll give three of my favorite examples. First, this is a classic, well-known cultural blunder from 1992, one I think I've shared with you before, but I couldn't find reference to it in any of my notes, so I'm going to use it again. But uh, 1992, President George H.W. Bush is in Australia for a diplomatic visit. He is getting on Air Force One, getting ready to leave the country. And as he does so, he turns at the very last second to the Australian press and the crowds and the politicians who are there, and he gives them the peace symbol. Except in Australia, this is the peace symbol. This is the middle finger for them. American president flipping off the entire country of Australia. Either someone failed to brief him on obscene Australian hand gestures, or he just forgot. Either way, it was a funny and unintentional cross-cultural blunder. Number two uh, is a story that I have loved ever since it happened. This was back in 2005. Um, when I was in seminary, I worked, as I have told you in the past, for HSBC for their credit card division. I was a credit card collector, so we'd call people and try to collect on their debts. And uh, paid the bills, got through seminary doing that. But when I graduated in 2005 and didn't have anywhere to go, I decided I was tired of collecting on credit cards, and I switched over to their quality control department. Have you ever called like customer service and you get that message, this call may be monitored or recorded for quality? That was me. I was that guy who was listening to your phone call, if you were having your credit cards collected on at least. Um, we would listen for, uh, make sure that uh, collectors didn't violate any state or federal laws, make sure they didn't violate company policy, make sure they were nice, make sure they you know, did all that normal stuff. We listened to our Chesapeake site where we were based, but we also listened to this, these two sites that were in the Philippines. And most of the people who worked in the Philippine sites were very good, uh, but obviously there's some cultural differences. The big one was their names. Their names were very different. And so the company had established a policy that they could do one of two things. They could either choose an American name that they could always use, so hi, I'm Steve, you know, like that sort of thing, and they were always had to be Steve, or they could use their real name or some form of it, as long as they were being honest. So I go and click on this one collector's call, and I begin to listen to it, and... Hello? Hi, is this, you know, Joe Smith? Yes, this is Joe Smith. Hi, Joe. This is Elmo calling from HSBC Credit Card Services. And the guy stops. He's like, Elmo? Was Big Bird busy? <laughs> and the guy on the other end totally doesn't get it. He's like, uh, no, this is Elmo calling. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. Is Grover available? <laughs> guy in the Philippines totally doesn't get it. Finally, the, the man in America hangs up on him. His name was Anselmo. That was his full name, and he thought he would shorten it to Elmo, not realizing that Elmo was a furry red monster in America. So I emailed his manager and said, listen, Anselmo didn't do anything wrong. He just can't go by Elmo. I'm sorry. Pick any name but that one. The uh, third one is my favorite because it's awkward, and it's like one of those situations you would never want to be in, and I the person who was in the story. And I don't, can't remember who told me the story now. It's just recently I heard it. Someone was telling me a story about, I think it was an American pastor who had gone to visit some missionaries that they, their church supported, I think in Africa, if I remember correctly. And they're out in some remote village and the missionary who's taking him there and the pastor are invited into the home of a particular family there in the village. And so it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal to get invited into the home. It's a big deal to be the foreigners they're visiting. And so they come in, and the woman of the house proceeds to serve them all coffee. And so 
Oh, thank you. No, this is great. Gets his coffee. And then she says, would you like milk in your coffee? And he says, oh, that'd be great. Wonderful. And I'm going to say this as delicately as I can. She proceeds to express breast milk into his coffee. No one in the room bats an eye but him. And now he's stuck because now he's looking at this going. <laughs> and not wanting to be offensive, he drinks it, excuses himself, walks out to the edge of the village, vomits, and comes back in and sits down and pretends like nothing ever happened. Oh, I couldn't have done that. I'm sorry. I just couldn't have done that. Oh, but I applaud him for being so kind. Look, the, the fact of the matter is whenever you run into a scenario or a situation where two cultures are coming together, stuff like that is just going to happen because there are things that will occur or, or happen that to you would seem like absolutely nothing, but to the other culture, it's huge, it's big, and vice versa. Things that to them would be nothing, but you run into it and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, and so stuff's going to happen. And dealing with that, with how to relate to cultures that are different than your own can be a very challenging thing to do. And this has probably been uh, nowhere better uh, seen or evidenced than in the world of missions. Because, of course, as our missionaries are going out from their home country into foreign cultures, they're having to make a lot of decisions. And I want you this morning to put yourselves in the shoes of any missionary traveling to any foreign land that's probably not English speaking, but, but just philosophically put yourself in that situation for a moment and realize that you have a major decision to make the moment you step off that plane into that country. And that decision is how much of this new culture will you adopt and make your own and how much of your own culture will you hold on to and cling to as you live there amongst them for the sake of the gospel? Let's use language as the first and probably easiest example. If you were there for the purpose of reaching them with the gospel, would you attempt to learn their language and, and assimilate yourself, accommodate yourself uh, to how they talk and how they speak? Or would you hope to teach everyone in the country English so that you can somehow get by based on what you already know? Well, that's an easy one. All of us in that scenario would have to learn the language. We'd, wherever we ended up, we'd learn that language so we can talk to people, share the gospel with them, and interact, etc. You get the idea. Uh, here's another example. Food. Would you attempt to eat and learn to enjoy the foods of your new culture? Or would you be at home on Amazon ordering Kraft macaroni and cheese every three days to keep your supplies up so you can like go out and meet and then go home and you know do ramen or whatever it is you're going to do? You know, you would... That would be probably a 50-50. There are probably some things you would always love just because that's how people are. Anytime people travel between cultures, they always long for the things that they grew up with, and that's totally fine. But at the same time, you definitely want to be able to eat foods that were offered to you or put before you at meals. Otherwise, you're not going to get into a lot of homes that way. So you'd have to, have to accommodate yourself. Uh, here's another example. Clothing. Would you attempt to dress like the people of that culture dress so that you kind of fit in? Or would you hold on to American clothing and American styles no matter what? And we could keep going, and you get the idea hopefully here. The main question that I asked at the beginning will keep playing itself out in each and every scenario or decision that you run into. How much of your new culture would you adopt as being your own? And how much of your old culture would you attempt to preserve no matter what. In each case, no doubt, your answer will be based on your purpose for being in that culture. 
you know, if I change the scenario for just a moment and say it's vacation, if your purpose for being in a new culture is vacation, you're going to adopt little, if any, of that new culture. There's no purpose. You're there for a week, you're there for two weeks, you're there for a month, whatever the case may be, but why learn the language? You're only there for a short time. If you don't like the food there, find the McDonald's. It's somewhere, right? If you don't like the dress, keep wearing your own clothing. If you don't, what? You're only there for vacation, so why would you adopt a lot? But if I go back to my scenario and your purpose is missions, it's reaching people with the gospel, then I would think that you should be willing to adopt whatever parts of the culture you need to in order to fulfill your mission. Now, that may not seem like such a revolutionary concept to you and I. As I say that, it maybe even seems really obvious and common sense. But in the 1800s, that would have been a revolutionary concept indeed. Today, if you're not aware, is our sixth and final message in this series through church history. And as I told you last week, what I wanted to do both last Sunday and this Sunday, since we're getting ready to say goodbye to the Kessners here in a couple of weeks, is I wanted to focus on missions and take a couple of characters from church history that had a big impact on the way we as the Western church think of this whole concept of missions. And, and in relation to how people interact with the culture, people in the 1800s did not think it necessary to adapt themselves to the cultures in which they were going to any great degree. That is, until one man in particular changed all that, a man named Hudson Taylor. James Hudson Taylor was born on May 21st, 1832 to James and Amelia Taylor. He was raised in Barnsley, Yorkshire, England. His father was a chemist and a Methodist preacher. As a child, Hudson would help his father in the chemist shop. He also did a little bit of banking. Uh, someone helped uh, me this week see that William Carey was also involved in banking. So apparently banking is a good way into missions, at least back then. At this time um, in England's history, China was still kind of seen as a mysterious foreign land. I mean, they've been going to China, especially with the East India Company for some time. But, but in terms of missions, in terms of the way the church viewed China, it was... It was the outer edges of, of pioneer missions work, and very few people had gone there at this point. Probably uh, as little as a dozen missionaries had ventured to China at this time in the early 1800s. And the British church in general is just beginning to get a, a, a burden to go there and to reach that land with the gospel right around the time Taylor's born. In a journal entry, his parents recorded their prayer for their newborn son, quote, Grant that he may work for you in China. And it's just a line, but, you know, if I could put a pause on my overall sermon and just speak to all of the moms and dads in here for a moment as a father of two children and myself. Um, if you put yourself in their shoes at that time in world history, to pray that is effectively to say, God, take my children from me. I'll never see them again. I mean, I don't know what you guys think as parents, but I, I tend to envision a day like when my children are grown and, and they have kids of their own and they live like in town down the road and I can go see them. And I mean, like, that's what I would think of as being the ideal setup that I could be with my kids and my grandchildren. Here's James and Amelia Taylor from the moment their son is born praying that God would send him to China with the real possibility that would mean they'd never, ever see him again. It's very convicting to me because I don't think I've ever prayed that. Taylor became a believer sometime during his teenage years. And in 1849, at the ripe old age of 17, he finally made up his mind about serving God in China. 
And as would turn out to be the case for pretty much every single thing that Hudson Taylor did in his entire life, he's a unique individual, I'll give him that, um, once he had made this decision, he gave it his all immediately. As soon as he decided this, he begins to learn everything he can, to, you know, what he can there in England at least, about Chinese culture. He tries to learn Mandarin. He tries to read every book he can get his hands on about the country and about the culture. He got rid of his bed because he thought, when I get to China, I probably won't have a bed. So I might as well learn to sleep on the floor in the cold now as a teenager. And so he did. He took his bed out of his room and learned to give up as many of the comforts of his life as he could think of so that he would be prepared when the time came to live without them. He began getting up early in the morning to exercise and just try to prepare himself physically for the strenuous labor it was going to take to penetrate China's interior. At this point in Chinese missions, again, there was not very much, not very much had been done in the early to mid-1800s. All of the work had been done on the coast. As missionaries would land, they would go to the port cities, and that's where they stayed. No one was going inland. So he began to prepare himself physically to try to, to get inland where nobody else was. He began learning medicine so that he could help others and himself, since there would be no doctors where he was going. There would be no help of any sort, actually. Um, he spent a great deal of time during this period where he's learning medicine, living out on the streets with the poor and the sick, again, just to prepare himself for what he would have to go through when he got there. That's what he felt was important. And even though we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit in the story, I'll, I'll do this for a moment, this determination that he had to do whatever it took to fulfill his purpose never changed until the day he died. He remained this driven his entire life. So driven, in fact, that some of his eventual co-workers weren't able to stay with him. They couldn't take it. He demanded so much sacrifice of himself first and then of anyone who would come and work with him that some of them had to abandon him because they just couldn't keep up with his rigorous schedule. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good or bad thing. I'm just trying to give you a, the idea or an idea of the kind of person that he was. He was personally willing to sacrifice anything and everything, literally, for the sake of missions. And he expected anyone who would come to work with him to do the same. He was almost like, uh, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if this will make sense, but he was almost like the first Navy SEAL of missions. You know, like SEALs are mentally and physically tough, right? They're willing to give anything and everything. That's the kind of guy he was. I'm pretty sure if he'd gone to Bud's, he'd have been first in his class. He wasn't going to Bud's. He was going to China, and he wanted to get there as soon as he could. And on March 4th, 1854, he arrived in Shanghai. Almost immediately after arriving, a civil war of sorts breaks out right there in Shanghai in the area around, and the war is raging literally outside of his home. You would think he might evacuate. He doesn't. He sees it as his opportunity to go out and help the sick and the wounded and the dying, and so he does. He stays put. Uh, and the Civil War ends. He and a fellow missionary begin traveling in boats up the river to evangelize, hand out tracts, Bibles in the villages along the river. The two men, uh, I forgot the other guy's name, and I didn't write it down. Elliot's his last name. Uh, they, uh, they begin going out, and as they do, and they go into these villages further inland than other people went, they're not very welcome because as they get off the boat, they're wearing British clothes, suits, jackets, collared shirts. They look like what, you know, something out of a Charles Dickens novel as they step off these boats with Bibles in their hands. And, and this is a problem for them. And so they're looking at the problem and they think about their purpose and they're like, well, why are we still wearing these clothes? 
And so Taylor does something that at the time was completely crazy. He picks up, he goes out and buys a Chinese wardrobe. He cuts his hair like the Chinese men did. He grew a pigtail down his back like the Chinese men did of that day, a practice he maintained for the rest of his life. One of uh, the people I was reading said that his fellow Protestant missionaries who are looking at him as he's doing this think he's gone crazy. They're incredulous that a British missionary of his stature, you know, this is an important position, that he would, that he would do these things. In fact, uh, here's a picture of him. This is him as an older man. He didn't, he didn't change the way he looked when he would come back to England on a couple occasions to visit. He, he, he wanted to be a Chinese missionary, and so he adopted the culture as much as he could to do whatever he had to do in order to reach the Chinese with the gospel. And if this is what it took, he didn't care what anyone thought about it. Now, let's pause for this from a moment, for a moment and, and try to think about this from a biblical perspective. A few moments ago, I read to you from this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I brought us here because it shows us that Paul and Hudson Taylor had a very similar way of thinking about and viewing their mission. Paul says here, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And, and read as I'm reading these verses, listen to them with Taylor and his decisions in mind. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, and he's referring to the Old Testament law there, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, these would be Gentiles, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I can win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, etc., etc., etc. And I want you to notice three things here in the text. First of all, notice that Paul's mission is rooted in his theology. He says here in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Well, what does it mean when he says that he is free from all? Well, unfortunately, due to time constraints, I can't develop that fully, so I'm just going to summarized, truncated greatly with this answer that effectively he's referring to the freedom that he has in Christ from all other obligations and identities. That's what it means when he says that he's free from all. Now that he is in Christ, he is free from all other obligations and identities. Paul grew up in Judaism under the Old Testament law. And under that lifestyle, in that culture, he thrived. He, he lived under its obligations. He found his identity in that. But now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the law and set him free from the curse of the law through his own death, burial, and resurrection, Paul now feels free from any and all pressures and expectations to live under that law's obligations or define his identity in it. His identity now is bound up in Christ. His obligations now are to live for Christ. He is free from all, and yet he says here in verse 19 that he has made himself a servant to all. Why? Why does he now make himself, even though he's free from all, why does he make himself a servant to all so that he can win more of them? Well, what's he talking about? This, this is the same guy who we saw a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2 said that every last component of salvation, start to finish, is from God alone, that no man desires God on his own. He knows this, but he also knows what William Carey knew that God in his eternal plan has chosen to use men and women to go out and spread the gospel in order to bring others to himself. And so what Paul is effectively saying here is that he's given himself to this task. Even though he is free from everyone, he has made himself a servant to all so that he can win more of them. Second, I want you to see that his methodology is guided both 
by his uh, target audience, but also by Scripture. He says to the Jews he became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So in other words, when he's around Jews, he lives like a Jew. He's going to live like them, act like them, look like them, talk like them. That's, I mean, it's easy because he was Jewish, so he gets that culture. It's not a problem for him. He, he, he says to those under the law, the Old Testament law, he became as one under the law. In other words, he's not going to bring a Wendy's Baconator to the synagogue picnic on you know, Sabbath day. It's just, it, would be, it would be stupid to do that because for them, as being people under the law, this would, this would be highly offensive. This would be very difficult. Now, he's going to live as one who is under the Old Testament law, but notice his caveat here, though not being myself under the law. He's simply making the point that his choice to live like those who were under the law is just that. It is a choice. It's his choice. So that he himself does not become a hindrance to the message of the gospel. So that he himself does not become a stumbling block to others hearing about Jesus. He, he doesn't have a problem eating the Baconator. He, he might not choose to eat it, though, in front of his Jewish friends because he doesn't want them to to be offended by that. He doesn't want his freedom to hinder the advance of the gospel. And so he accommodates himself. You hear that word? He accommodates himself to his culture for the purpose of the gospel. Now, on the flip side, he says then that to those who were outside the law, he became as one who was also outside the law. Well, who was outside the law? The Gentiles. All the non-Jews, when he was with Gentiles, he lived like the Gentiles lived. But again, notice his caveat, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Now, why would he say that? Well, if it isn't obvious, it's because the Gentiles, being without the commands of God, were extremely sinful. Okay. You understand that in our own culture, unbelievers. Our culture is a little different, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, unbelievers live in sin. You know, we think our society is bad. All you have to do to get a little glimpse of what Paul was going through in the early believers is read through the sin lists throughout the New Testament. There's multiple of them where Paul lists out a number of sins that made up what the people of the world did, the people of the flesh did. Read those sins and ask yourself on each and every word in the list. I was going to make a comment, but I was afraid it would come across the wrong way, but Ask yourself on each and every word that you read in those lists, have you ever heard a sermon on that in your life? I'll guarantee you there are a number of words, a number of sins listed on those lists that you have never heard a sermon on, ever. I know there's a number I have never preached on. So you think our culture is bad? It is. Theirs was worse. Don't worry, we're trying to play catch up, okay? We'll get there soon enough. All I'm saying is that there are things there he warns believers about that we've never dealt with. The Gentile culture of Paul's day was exceedingly sinful. And so he is making the point that, that when he is with those who are outside the law and he says he tries to live like them, he's not referring to their sinful practices. He's still under the law of God. He is still under the law of Christ. And so he lives in light of that. He can come to their handbake on the Sabbath. He can, he can live not under the obligations that other Jews could live under, but he would not violate God, sin against God in any of those other ways. He does this to win those who are outside the law. To the weak, he becomes like the weak. 
In fact, he says, he has become all things to all people so that by all means he can save some. His, his methodology is driven by his target audience, by who he's with, but is not outside or apart from the bounds of Scripture, of God's commands and obligations on him. He feels a need to obey God and honor God no matter what. Finally, notice that his purpose, his long-term goal, what he's aiming at in the end, is to be a part of the plan of God. He says he does all of this for the sake of the gospel so that he can share with them in its blessings. Well, who's them? Well, it's the Jews and those under the law and those outside the law, and it's the weak and it's all people. He understands that God's plan in the gospel was to save all kinds of people from all these different groups to bring them together to be a part of God's church, a part of God's plan. Every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne in heaven someday. And Paul says, look, I want to be there with them. I want to be there with them sharing in the blessings of the gospel and the blessings of Christ. And so with that purpose in mind, he goes out to all these people and he tries to become like them so that he can share Christ with them. That that's all Taylor was doing. Again, it's not that radical to us, but in the 1800s, that was radical. In fact, if you would allow it for a moment, simply for the sake of making a point, may I, may I change just a couple of words on this slide that's behind me right now in order to help you see Taylor's heart? To the Chinese, I became Chinese that I might win the Chinese. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with the Chinese and its blessings. That's effectively, effectively what Taylor was trying to do. Taking that very verse and applying it very specifically to the people for whom he had a burden. Like Paul, Taylor himself did not want to be a hindrance to the gospel. For him, you know, it's not the Baconator. For him, it, it was, uh, it wasn't, that wasn't his hindrance, it was his clothing. It was his hairstyle. It was his Britishness. Well, he has a, a different understanding, though, of his home country than many of his companions did. He knew that Britain wasn't his home. He was born there. He was raised there. He understood its culture. But Britain wasn't his home. And since Britain's not his home, it's not the thing that he has to cling to or the thing that he has to hold to. If that's going to be a, a hindrance to the gospel, if there's, if he's going to, he, then that's going to go. He felt no obligation to hold on to those things. He felt no identity tied to any of those components. In his mind, that was an easy call. If looking and acting British was a hindrance to the Chinese hearing the gospel, then he would give all of that up and look and live like them that he might win more. That, that doesn't mean he adopted everything they did because they, like every culture, had sinful practices built into their culture. And he would stand against that and fight against that. And so in those instances, he followed Christ instead of culture. In other words, he adapted his methodologies to his target audience, but never outside the bounds of Scripture. And God used him. He started his own mission agency eventually, uh, primarily because in time, this is not my notes, but I, in time he became uh, quite disillusioned with most of the other missionaries that he worked with. 
from other mission agencies and even his own that he had come with. He, he saw them as being too worldly. They spent too much of their time with uh, British businessmen and diplomats and not enough time out sharing the gospel. And so he, he quit his mission agency that he was with. He started his own. It was called the China Inland Mission. Before he died in 1905, he had personally, just about, recruited 800 missionaries to join him in China to reach the interior of the country. He reached every province in China in his lifetime, not he personally, but his mission agency reached every province in China there in the late 1800s before he died. Um, Many, many of the men and women he sent inland died as well. He knew that would happen. They knew that would happen. He once wrote, quote, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time, even life itself must be secondary. Now, you can't say that if you think this world is your home. You can't say that if you think that you have a country here. He didn't see this world as his home, and he didn't see a country here. You don't hear people talk like this very often, but Taylor did, and he meant it. And he and his wife were both buried there uh, in the city of Xinjiang, next to the Yangtze River. Now, you know, what do we do with this? Because you can hear this and be like, like, almost feel just guilty because he sounds so amazing and you don't, you know, it's like, it'd be very easy to kind of have that sort of reaction to it. And I, I don't really want that, but I do want us to think though, very carefully about what we see in 1 Corinthians 9 and even what we see in Taylor's life as an example. So let me apply this in two completely different avenues for a moment. First, let me apply this to how we think about missions in general, missions just in general. You do realize, I hope, that the goal of missions for us as a church here at Cornerstone is not to export American Christianity. The goal of missions is to preach the gospel, right? You, everybody get this? You're good? Because, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I know I have seen examples in the past, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to pick on anyone as I make these comments, so please hear my heart, I hope. But I've seen missionaries who have come back and they have shown pictures of what they were doing. And when they show the pictures, you know, it doesn't matter where they're at. They've got a, a building with a steeple. And, you know, the, the picture of the service, uh, everybody's like in pews or some kind of pew-like thing. And the, the missionary's in a suit and tie. And they're singing translated American hymns. And not that there's anything necessarily wrong with any of those specific things. Again, if you, you got to make sure you get my point. But it just causes you to look at the pictures and go, what exactly are we preaching? Are we preaching American Christianity or are we preaching the gospel? You know, as, as Jared and Sharon get ready to leave for Indonesia, you know, I, I have no clue what God's going to do there. But here's what I don't want. I don't want to see a, a little cornerstone. I don't want pictures to come back and it be in a room with gray walls and people dressed like us and singing our songs. And It should be an Indonesian church. Should be Indonesians looking like Indonesians, singing like Indonesians, praying like Indonesians, learning like Indonesians. It should be an Indonesian church, not little cornerstone. 
Um, I think of a friend of mine who is a missionary in Cameroon. And uh, it was funny, I was, he, they came home one time to visit, and we had dinner with them, and we were talking, I don't even know what we were talking about, how we got to this, but he started talking about like, clothing. He was saying that in Cameroon, um, if you want to wear your Sunday best, okay, that's, you know, and they did, they went, Sunday services would come, the people who would gather, they would put on their best clothing. Well, for them, in that culture, your best clothing was your brightest clothing. Matching did not matter at all. You could have a neon pink, a lady, a neon pink like dress with polka dots, and you could have an orange floral print shirt and a purple something on your head. If anyone walked in here, we would like, oh my goodness, right? You would laugh at them. But if you dress like I dress, and I purposely wore this specific outfit today for this reason, they would be like, what is wrong with him? Like black pants, dark blue shirt. You wear your brightest clothes, not your darkest. And so what did he and his family do? Is he going to be the American who shows up in a suit? <laughs> they went and bought bright clothing. And they just went and worshipped with their brothers and sisters and all their crazy get-up to us, at least, culturally. You know, the, the things we want to be the same in these places is not this stuff. We want the gospel to be the same. We want the doctrine to be the same. We want the preaching of Jesus Christ from the scriptures to be the same. Outside of that, we really shouldn't care. Have just right expectations as we think about even Jared and Sharon and what they're going to be doing in Indonesia over the next several years. Second, let me apply this to us and how we interact with our own culture. Now, for us here, right, you go to work tomorrow, you understand this culture. So for you, the issue isn't trying to figure out how to fit in. You already fit in. You already dress the part, look the part, eat the part, talk the part. You, you get our culture because it's all we've known for the vast majority of us. However, I want to begin to encourage you, I want to encourage you to begin thinking of your culture the way that Paul describes it here in 1 Corinthians 9. How can you use it, but not be a part of it without in any way sacrificing your obedience to Christ? See, this is where our danger is. It's not trying to figure out how to be a part of our culture. That's the easy part that we don't have to think about. The danger for us is fitting into culture but not being overtaken by it. And I've watched this happen to people now, friends of mine. I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but it's been more than once and twice. Where, where people begin to want to, you know, well, we want to engage culture. We want to reach people. We want to do this. And so they begin this or they begin that. But over time... This or that overtakes the original purpose of why they began it. To make a couple of you mad, alcohol is a great example. It's a great one. I've had friends who never drank. And, and you, if you've been at Cornerstone for any length of time, you know I don't think that al- drinking is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin, but I don't think the drinking is. But we forget that the scriptures give as many warnings as they give blessings on it. And I've watched people who embrace this one thing for the purpose of missions, which I'm not sure is a good reason to do it, but regardless, I'll let that pass. They embrace it, but in time, that becomes a non-issue altogether, and now it's just they like to drink all the time. I'm just saying to you, it's time for us to maybe stop and re-examine some of the things we have embraced from our culture to make sure that they haven't overtaken parts of our hearts and parts of our lives that they don't belong to. It's not that the things are necessarily sinful in every case. Many of them can be great things. But when they can take a wrong place, they can take a wrong 
focus, and before we know it, there's no difference between us and an unbeliever in a particular area. And there should be. There should be a clear distinction between us and the unbelievers with whom we work and who are in our family and whom we live next to. There should be a clear difference. You say, but I want to fit in with them. I, I get that, and that's not bad. Taylor wanted to, and he did it, I think, in right ways. I'm not saying he didn't make any mistakes. I'm just, I'm just saying to you, be careful. That's it. Be careful. Because if your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family can't tell a difference between you and the unbeliever you're standing next to, then something is terribly wrong. Biblically, there would even be a question about your salvation, but I hope that is not the case. If we are completely embraced by our unbelieving culture, then something is wrong. Our Lord clearly lived in his culture, but he clearly stood out from it and was persecuted and rejected and ostracized because of that by many, many, many people in his culture. So shouldn't we expect the same? Folks, I believe that, not to sound wacky, but um, I believe that the day is quickly coming in American culture where that really won't be much of a danger for us anymore. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I have a feeling that a day is coming where to be a Christian, to call yourself a Christian in this country, is going to cost you something. Where, you know, if I could quote Taylor for just a moment, just a part of him, where uh, quiet, ease-loving men and women will not be able to just call themselves Christians and no one question it. And you will now have to answer for how you claim to be. And so like Taylor, um, I think it's time maybe for us to, metaphorically speaking, get rid of our beds. Metaphorically speaking, begin to think about sleeping on the floor getting up early and prepare ourselves to be what we have been all along. Sojourners, travelers, foreigners. We're the foreigners. This world is not our home. We sang it, Psalm 62. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Where are the fields in which you've sown your life? Here or there? You can't live like Taylor. You can't live like Paul. You can't live like Christ if this world is your home. And so will you bow your heads and ask God with me to give us a heart that does not see this world as our home so that we can live like this. Jesus, we are so tied to this world. Our affections are so tied to it. It's like we're drowning in it, in our culture, in our our society and our lives and the worldliness in which we live and every great now and then I feel like I can get a glimpse where I can lift my head out and see and, but no sooner does that happen than I feel like I'm back down in it. We're supposed to live as ministers, as missionaries. What Taylor did in China is no different than what we need to do here. He used the culture, he accommodated himself to it, but for the purpose of the gospel, for the purpose of pleasing you, not those around him. He left the results up to you. He realized that. He knew as people were going out into the interior that they would die. 
He struggled with that, but he came to that understanding that in the end, you alone could be responsible for the results, not him. And you used that. Thousands came to Christ through that. And here we are now in a culture that is just about as foreign to Christianity as his was. And, and, and now we're going out. Except our going out is, is going to the grocery store and it's going to work. It's, it's the stuff we do every day. And so I, I, I don't even know how to ask this, but help us, Lord, to begin to see even those mundane acts as being journeys of a foreigner in a foreign land. That this world is not our home. That we have a better country coming. That the fields of hope in which we sow are not here. May our hopes not be rooted here but there so that we can go out and live for you being all things to all people so that by all means you may save some. So we thank you for your word, for the example of Taylor. Please help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.